I was but a wee lad, wee lad, when we entered the decade of the 1960s. But I remember the day JFK was shot, and I remember seeing the protests against the Vietnam War on TV, and I remember watching the landing on the moon. Those were global, earth-shattering events. But for this wee lad, there was one event that outshined all of those. We lived in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time, and my dad took me to a professional baseball game. Charlie Hustle, a.k.a. Pete Rose, was playing. And not only that all-star, but the, the up-and-rising uh, rookie, that well-known, who, who came to be well-known catcher Johnny Bench, was also playing. Now, on that particular day, I didn't meet them. I didn't get their autograph. But I was there, and I watched them play ball. And that was the excitement of the decade for this young wee lad. I was high up in the stadium, but that didn't matter because I was there. How much money and how much time do we invest looking to catch a glimpse of that musician or that actress or that athlete when they are displaying their talent and their skills. Oh, that time that we might invest uh, might be so brief, maybe an, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. Ah, but to catch a glimpse of their glory, their skill, their talent, their ability. Oh, we pay good money for that. Time's coming for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to simply to, to, to experience something far more significant than that. This morning we conclude John chapter 17. Bible teachers for a long time have called this Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's this unique event in the gospel record where Jesus with his men, the eleven, Judas Iscariot has gone out. He'll show up next chapter. Jesus is with his men and he is praying to the Father in their presence. And, and, and they have been welcomed to listen in on this prayer meeting. The 17th chapter is easily divided into three groups. Jesus prays for his own glory in the first five verses. He's anticipating 
the completion of his mission of redemption, anticipating that time when he will ascend back into heaven and take his rightful place as, um, as the Son next to the Father, and he eagerly desires that the glory that is reserved for him be his upon that completion. We spent the last two Sundays looking at the second section of this particular prayer where Jesus is praying for his disciples. There are places in, in this section where, where we could easily see how, how, how the, the ideas expand to, to all believers, but primarily Jesus has these 11 in front of him in mind, and he's praying for them. Now in the third section, beginning at verse 20, Jesus prays for his church. If you're a believer in Christ, this is where you know Jesus is praying for you. Read the text with me. Chapter 17 of John's Gospel, beginning at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have, and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made, no, made, your, made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's my sermon in a sentence. Jesus prays for unity that results in his glory. Jesus prays for the unity of his own, his redeemed ones, that will result in Christ's glory. If you look at our text in verse 20, Jesus uh, is, is obviously at this point expanding the, those for whom he is praying. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those 
who also believe in me through their word. And he's speaking of the disciples' word. So, so these that we, we typically call the, the 12 disciples um, re- really are the 11 disciples because Judas never was a true born-again disciple. He was one who followed Jesus. So in that sense, we can call him a disciple, uh, but he wasn't a redeemed man. These 11 are genuinely redeemed. And these are the ones that Jesus will very shortly commission, send out as his sent ones. And the Greek word is there is apostolos. They are his apostles. So so there's a transition between simply being a, a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, to now they will be apostles, sent ones. And by their verbal testimony and by their written testimony, the New Testament, many people will also believe in Christ. And that's how we get there. Matter of fact, there is no one since the apostolic time that ever comes to faith in Christ apart from the word, the testimony of the apostles. We are absolutely dependent upon what the apostles provide for us. So the illiterate can come to faith when they hear the apostolic message. The literate can read the testimony left for us in Scripture and come to faith. But no one comes to faith apart from the testimony of the apostles. So Jesus is praying for those who would believe in him through the words of the apostles. Now in verses 21 through 24, Jesus shines an earthly spotlight on what he desires these who would believe do Here's where we get our uh, focus on unity. And then secondly, he focuses his spotlight heaven, uh, in, in a heavenly manner to that time when his people will be in his presence and will behold his glory. One more time, the sermon in a sentence. Jesus prays for unity that results in his glory. Two parts, part number one, Jesus' earthly spotlight. Look with me again at verse 21. I pray for these, Jesus says, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22 that they may be one, just as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity.
those people that are part of the ecumenical movement um, would, would use these verses as a, as a set of proof texts uh, to, to say that, that what the Lord really wants is for there to be one church where we stand around and, and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Um, that's not what, we're, uh, what, what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about, he's not praying for an organizational unity. He's praying for a spiritual unity. It's a unity that inherently exists upon faith, yet must also be maintained in our faith. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon spoken uh, a century and a half ago. He said, a chorus of voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is, quote, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite, unquote. Spurgeon continues, such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Only those sanctified through the Word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And when we find this idea of unity in the New Testament, we find it described in spiritual terms, not in organizational terms. I want to take you to a few passages of Scripture where we, where we find this uh, described. Uh, but before I do that, I'm, the first one we're going to turn to is in, in the book of, of Philippians and William Barclay says this in his commentary on Philippians. He says, The one danger that threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. It is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater that danger that they may collide. It is against that danger Paul wishes to safeguard his friends. So what kind of, what kind of unity are we talking about here? Philippians chapter 2, find verse 2. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Now, admittedly, there is some, some overlap and a little bit of, of expansion by way of synonymous phrases. But when he says, be of the same mind, he's talking about being mentally focused on the same thing, namely the truth of Scripture. When he says that we should, be, we should maintain the same love, it is to mirror the same kind of sacrificial love that we see modeled for us by Christ. When he says that we should be united in spirit, It's a lowercase s. He's not referring to the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a oneness of spirit. He's talking about the avocation of our soul, like we talked about last week, a devotion to purity and to proclamation. To be intent on one purpose is to advance God's kingdom. These are spiritual realities. There may be differences among groups of Christians to carry out these mandates in slightly different ways, and that's okay, and we can still be united in mind, in purpose, in soul, um, in spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 is another place where we find this same exhortation to spiritual unity. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Every person who comes to faith in Christ is folded into, welcomed into, brought into one church with a capital C. There is only one church. It is, as many, um, uh, as the reformers were, 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 were wont to say, there is, there is one invisible church. And we are all brought in together in that. Now, true, true biblical unity um, does not mean uniformity. There are, there are differences. Jesus is not calling us to sameness. We don't have to to all wear the same kind of clothing. We don't have to say the same kinds of things. We don't have to all have the same things in our garages. Jesus says in verse 22 of our text, that they may be one just as we are one. The Father and the Son were one in essence, but they are different persons. So we are one in purpose, one in spirit, one in love, um, 
but we are different individuals. The Westminster divines sought to systemize the, uh, the whole of, of Scripture. And one of the documents that they came forth with was the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 25 is titled, Of the Church. And we read this statement uh, regarding the nature of the church. The Catholic, that's with a lowercase c, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered unto one, into one, under Christ the head. We are all gathered together in one body. We are united together. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now, look, it over, look over at chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body, the physical body, is one and yet has many members arms, legs, tummy, eyes. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and and, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. There is diversity even in our unity. So, so what, what, what is that unity? That unity is, is focused on the object of our faith, namely on Jesus, as the, the one, the only Uh, the necessary, the essential, the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We are united on the testimony of our faith, namely the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. We are united together in knowing and obeying what the Lord has left behind for us in Scripture. In these things, we are united. Those who are genuine Christians embrace these values. Second page of your notes. (coughs) (coughs) Jesus says in, in verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. 
Even though there is an inherent unity for all believers that come together in this one body, the one universal church, nevertheless, we are called to eagerly maintain that which the Holy Spirit has granted to us. It is by grace that we are welcomed into faith, welcomed into God's church, welcomed into his presence, and we are to eagerly maintain that inherent unity given to us. Back in the book of Ephesians, the verses immediately preceding what I read just moments ago, chapter 4, verse 1 and following reads this way, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 2, with humility, with gentleness, with a patience and a long-suffering that is showing tolerance to one another. Eagerly be diligent to preserve the unity that the, the Holy Spirit provides. So, so we go back to that, that list of what is, what is most important. The sufficiency of Christ and his suffering. The, the necessity, the sufficiency of Scripture. And um, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it, its message to us. That is our focus. And to that, we bring our own attention and the attention of other people. <clears throat> D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the book of John, wrote this. Unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. Our supernatural, uh, God's supernatural work among us effects, I'm sorry, demands that there be some kind of supernatural cause bringing about that effect. And here's that supernatural effect. Verse 21. So that, see that at the end of the verse, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at verse 23. So that, here's the result of Christ's supernatural work, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them 
even as you have loved me. So, so here, here's three effects that we are, are looking for, anticipating, because of the inherent unity the Holy Spirit provides and our eager maintenance of that unity. Number one, verse 23, the world will know that the Father sent the Son. Second, the world will know that the Father loves those whom the Son redeemed. And number three, that the world might know that the Father loves the Son. There is an essential unity within the Trinity. Now, um, a, a, a few weeks ago, I quoted Thomas Manton. He was a, a Puritan preacher who was the, um, the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. He was also one of, he, he was the clerk for the Westminster Assembly. He said this, and I want you to evaluate this sentence. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. What do you think about that statement? Jesus says twice, verse 21, verse 23, he prays for unity in the church, not only that inherent unity that's going to come by the Holy Spirit, but that they eagerly maintain what the Holy Spirit provides for them. He prays that they might have and embrace and maintain that unity so that the world might know that Jesus came, was sent by the Father. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. What do you think? I think he overstates the case. For there are times in God's church where a separation, a division is necessary. Maybe when something of secondary or tertiary importance is elevated to a a, a primary doctrine. That's wrong. That's not showing uh, discernment. That's not being a careful student of the Scripture to know what is primary and what is secondary. And it also might be that there are those who claim to be Christians, who are not. And at that case, in, in that case, uh, there, there will be uh, a separation, a division within the local, um, visible church um, that might be absolutely necessary in order to maintain the purity of God's gospel. But I think we can affirm the obverse, and I quote uh, uh, Kent Hughes here. He said, unity in the church builds belief in the world. All right. I think I could buy that. Unity in God's church, where we 
we, we, we highlight, we, we lift up those, those primary uh, things of first importance, uh, and we give freedom, latitude, uh, we express love and tolerance for our brothers and sisters on secondary and tertiary matters. When, when, when the world sees that kind of supernatural effect of unity among different kinds of people from maybe different economics points of, of uh, uh, in society or uh, different racially, with different languages. Um, when, when the world sees those kinds of people coming together, that's a supernatural effect. And they will, they, they, will, they will know that there has to be some kind of corresponding supernatural cause that brings that about. All right, this, that's the first half of, of this, this last um, portion of Jesus' prayer where he is, he's, he's focusing on uh, the, the uh, earthly uh, group of people that are redeemed. Uh, they're still part of the invisible church. But they, we have to work it out. We have to work that out and eagerly maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit has, uh, has given to us. Second, second point in your outline, Jesus turns the spotlight to our heavenly expectation. This is the last petition in his prayer, the final two verses of this 17th chapter are merely a recapitulation of, of some of the things that Jesus has already said. So verse 24 is, is, um, is his last petition. Read it together with me. Well, you read silently. I'll read it aloud. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is an eager anticipation here of Jesus being with his own. I, I, I can't even imagine what it, what it would have been like. I mean, I would have been shocked and, and uh, uh, absolutely beside myself if, if somebody like a, a, a Pete Rose or Johnny Bench said, I, I hear there's a young, young man in our, uh, in, our, in our stadium here uh, this afternoon, and we'd like to have Rob Martini come down and, uh, and, and come play ball with us for just a, just a short period of time. What? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely unthinkable. But here, Jesus looks forward eagerly to that time when he will be with us. If you're a believer in Christ, you can put your name there. He wants to be with you. Now, this is not new to the disciples. He's said on a couple of, uh, a couple of occasions here. In, uh, in chapter 12, Jesus said, Where I am, there my servant 
will be also. And this, this particular evening, Jesus said, uh, in, uh, recorded for us in chapter 14, verse 3, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What an amazing promise. Where Jesus is today is where we will be. John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are, we, are, we are children of God, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We won't be at the top of the stadium. We'll be right there on the ball field with him. Right next to him. That's part of our our blessed hope. To not only see the Lord, but to be in his presence and to be molded to be just like him. We will have a resurrected body. What's that like? I don't know exactly. But we will be with him and like him. In the midst of difficulty and affliction and trouble this is this is a, a promise a reality that we need to come back to over and over again back in our text verse 25 verse 26 In retrospect, Jesus prays, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I I have made known your name to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I close with one One more verse from earlier that evening, John chapter 14, verse 20. Jesus left us with this promise. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Amen. Father, thank you for the reminder of your glorious presence with us even now, but even more perfectly in the life to come. With eager anticipation do we await that day. And we pray that you would be pleased with our faith until that time. Amen.